You can be seated. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're walking through various Psalms throughout this summer. We're calling it our Summer Mixtape Series, where we are looking at a different Psalm each week. All right? And uh, we've covered several already, and today we're going to be in Psalm 73. I want to tell you about some almost moments in history. For instance, in 1609, Jamestown Settlement was struggling. They were short on food. They had resorted to eating whatever they could find, including dogs, leather, and one journal even said they began to dig up corpses to eat. The Virginia Company had sent a fleet in order to help them during this time to send supplies And that fleet got destroyed or sent off course by a hurricane. They began to panic. They began to worry. And they began to pack up. The Jamestown settlement, the few lone survivors decided it was time to go back to England and to end this grand experience, experiment in the new world. And in June of 1610, as they were preparing to head back to England over the horizon, came a ship sent by the Virginia Company as one last-ditch effort. It arrived with a year's full of food and a new governor that set them in the right direction. If that ship had been a month later, Jamestown would not have been there. It would have changed the course of English history. Perhaps English colonies never come to be. In 1947, a young man traveled to the United States with a dream to play baseball. He tried out for the Washington Senators and had a really good tryout. They worked him out a couple of times, thought about it, and in the end decided to cut him from the team. He went back to his home country crushed, decided to turn to politics, and became the leader of Cuba for decades. His name was Fidel Castro. On January 30th, 2000, on an icy day in Atlanta, Kevin Dyson almost stretched the ball across the goal line to tie the Super Bowl between the Tennessee Titans and the St. Louis Rams. Maybe that moment's not quite as significant as the other two, but it was still important. You had any almost moments in your life? Time when you almost did something or you almost didn't do something? Time when you thought about it and changed your mind or got close and not quite got there? We're going to talk today about one of the almost moments for the worship leader of God's people. It occurs in Psalm 73, and it occurs in a moment when he is questioning everything, and doubts are raging. And although he was almost 2,500 years before Steve Perry would belt it out in the 1980s classic, the theme of his particular psalm is, Don't Stop Believing. I like that. Y'all didn't. That's all right. That happens. In 15 years, that happens, all right? That's the title of our message today, and we're going to be looking at Psalm 73. We're going to just walk through it verse by verse, and then at the end, I'm going to give you 
four or five things from this passage that um, I think are important for us. Starting in Psalm 73, verse 1, even before that, it says a psalm of Asaph. Just so you know, Asaph was one of the worship leaders during the time of David. There are some people out there, some scholars, that think that this isn't the Asaph of David's time, but that what may have happened is that the leaders that would have come after him from his family would have just been called the Asaph of that generation. Some of the wording almost sounds like things that would have happened in this psalm after the exile. But either way, this is a musical director, the worship leader for the nation of Israel. This is the one that's in charge of worship for all of Israel. And he starts with this just simple declaration. God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. A couple of things about that just real quickly. First of all, the word indeed there is a word that will show up two other times in this psalm. And it literally marks the sections of the psalm into three distinct areas. The first one describing what he saw. The second one describing what he tried to do to to alleviate his concerns. And the third one, what God showed him. And in this first one, he's just making a simple declaration. God is good. The word good there means that he is for us. He is for our well-being. That what God does is good. It is right. It is something that is helpful to people. Now, I just want you to know that the word indeed there can also mean a different word. And I think that the context tells us that the idea behind it is this. He basically says, nevertheless, God is good to Israel. Because what we're going to see in this particular psalm is an honest assessment from Asaph that sometimes life doesn't go the way we think it should go. That sometimes life is frustrating and difficult and it's not so much what we don't get. Sometimes, if we're honest, we look at other people and see that they are getting things that they don't deserve and it causes us to question. And Asaph is declaring at the very beginning, the conclusion is, before we even get into the whole diatribe about what I went through, the conclusion is God is good in spite of, or nevertheless, or regardless of what happens. God is good. It says to the pure in heart, that doesn't mean perfect. It just means to those of us that are seeking Him, to those of us that are wanting To follow Christ, God is good. And then he gives us the almost moment, starting in verse 2. But as for me, he says, the worship leader of Israel, the lead worshiper of those people, my feet almost slipped and my steps nearly went astray. If you remember back all the way to the very first psalm that we talked about in this summer series, We talked about Psalm chapter 1, blessed is the man who does not, but that he focuses on the Lord. And we talked in that sermon about the fact that one of the metaphors that is used throughout Scripture about the way we follow the Lord is we talk about our walk with the Lord, our, our walk with the Lord, our walk for Him, our walk with Him, our walk to Him, this idea that we are living our lives. And so it's a picture of what life is. And he says, in the midst of that whack, I almost fell down. I almost slipped. I nearly, my steps nearly betrayed me. The picture really here is of a stumbling. 
that I came close to stumbling and falling. Those of you that are parents or grandparents, remember those moments when your children first began to walk. And you would hold out your hands. Maybe one parent sat on one side and the other was just a few feet away. And you would hold out your hands and say, come. And they would start. And you all remember those moments when they would take a step or two and it looked good. And then things started going off the rails. The lean started happening, the veering off to the side, and you would either catch or, depending on what kind of parents you are, watch as they stumbled and fell, right? Won't judge you for whatever happened there. The picture here is literally like that child that is veering off, about to fall down, and then something corrected it. And then he tells us why he almost stumbled, starting in verse 3. He says, For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die and their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. He says, I saw the unbelievers and I was jealous. I envied them. I wanted to be like them. I wanted to have what they have. And he gives us this really kind of vivid picture of it. And it starts with this just amazing statement he makes. Because in my translation, in the translation we use, the Christian Standard Bible says, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But the word that is used there in the original language is a word that if you've been around the Bible, if you've been around church, if you've grown up studying these kind of things, hearing these kind of things, you recognize the word that they translate as prosperity here is because it is shalom, peace. And what's interesting about that is God's peace is only supposed to come. This wholeness, this completeness, this complete satisfaction in life is only supposed to come to those that are following the Lord. And yet, here he says, I look at the wicked, I look at the arrogant, and they've got shalom. Peace. They don't have any hardship in life it doesn't look like. The word here, their bodies are well fed, it literally says in the original language, they're fat. Because in their day and time, if you were fat, it meant you had a lot of food. If you had a lot of food, it meant you were rich. He says, they don't have a problem. They're fat. They're not in trouble. They are not afflicted like most people. And he just continues this writing of what's going on. He says, therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. They wear it proudly. They are not even trying to hide the fact that they are against God. It tells us in Scripture again and again that pride comes before the fall, that God hates the proud, that God cannot stand the proud. He says, and yet here they are standing against you, declaring themselves that they are against you, God, and nothing seems to be happening to them. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. That's a vivid picture, isn't it? The imagination of their hearts run wild. They said they think of anything evil they can do and they do it. He said, not only that, Lord, not only do I look at their lives and I see that they are well fed and they are at peace. They don't have any troubles. And these are the wicked and they are proud. They are openly opposing you. Verse 9, they set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. 
They mock. They speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven. Their tongues strut across the earth. All of these are vivid pictures of people that are actively engaging in speaking against God. Calling truth lies and lies truth. Openly questioning whether God exists. Openly questioning whether or not He has any right to say anything. Openly questioning whether God is who God is. Verse 10 says, And their wealth and their health and all that is there has made even people begin to listen. Verse 10 says, Therefore His people, that's God's people, Turn to them, and I love this picture, drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease, and they increase their wealth. The worship leader of Israel is looking at the situation around him, and he says, listen, God, I don't understand it. These people are openly mocking you. They are openly speaking against you. And yet they are the ones that have shalom, that have peace. They are the ones that are well fed. They are the ones that have. They are the ones that we see are prospering in this life. They are prospering so much, God. What doesn't make sense to me is that even your people are beginning to listen to them. And as they listen to them, they're wondering, does God exist? Is He able to take care of us? And just to drive it home, when it says in verse 12, they are always at ease, the word there is the form of the word shalom again. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this author is, as Asaph is, where it just seems like no matter what you do, you can't get ahead. And you see people around you that are openly mocking the ways of God, that are living in ways that you know are not what God would intend. And it seems like they've got it all together and they're doing great and everything's great for them. And you were just like, what in the world is happening here, God? How can they be succeeding? How can they be going strong? When those that are faithful to you are not. Maybe you've seen it in your personal life with friends or acquaintances. Maybe you've seen it in your professional life with people that work with you and around you. You're the one that's trying to follow the rules and do what God says. And then you've got somebody that's going outside the rules and breaking moral codes. And they're the ones getting ahead and they're the ones getting the promotion. Perhaps it is somebody in your family that you don't understand how they can be living the way they're living. And God's still prospering them, still helping them. And you just look around and you were like, God, how is it that these people are succeeding? are making, are doing great when they are flaunting your very law. And it leads Asaph to ask a very difficult question in verse 13. He says, Indeed, that's where that word shows up, a shift. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. He basically looks to God and says, Then God, what is the point? 
What is the point of doing what I'm doing? What's the point of trying to live for you? What's the point of trying to do what you've called me to do? What is the reason behind it? God, is it worth it? Have I done all of these things? Have I made my commitment to you? Am I following you? And I'm restraining myself from things. Is all of it worth it, God? Or is it for nothing? The word that he uses here is in vain. Indeed, in vain have I kept your word. In vain have I done what you've called me to do. In vain have I purified myself. God, is it meaningless? Is it worthless? Verse 15. If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. But to be honest, Lord, when I tried to understand all of this, it seemed hopeless. Until. God, I worked on this. I couldn't figure it out in my mind. I want you to notice, Asaph says, I didn't say anything. What's interesting here, what restrains him from saying anything is his position as leadership in the people of God and the people of God around him. Because he said, if I would have, imagine if the worship leader of Israel had come out and said, you know what, I don't believe this stuff anymore. God's not good. It's not what he said. It's all in vain that we're doing this. He said, I would have ruined your people. I would have betrayed them and you. And so, God, I kept silent. But in my silence, I continually worked and thought and tried to figure it out. And the more I thought about it, the more hopeless I became. I just want to tell you that this issue is not a new issue. It's an old issue. Obviously, Asaph dealt with it. It's been dealt with before that. We'll talk about a guy in a moment that many think is the first book chronologically, kind of historically in the Bible fully. That dealt with it. And people today deal with it. We've talked about it before, but one of the kind of trends happening among um, young people in our world today is something called deconstruction. Where they are deconstructing their faith is what they talk about. And there are some famous people. I saw that yesterday I was watching a guy that was on YouTube that I watch on YouTube sometimes. has come out with music about the time that happened during his deconstruction phase. When he went from a believer in Jesus to somebody that wasn't. His foot didn't almost slip. It did slip. And when you begin to hear those kind of discussions, and when you begin to hear people talk about it, there's two or three issues that generally kind of fall underneath why they begin to walk away from the faith or begin to think differently about it. But one of the most prevalent, if not the most prevalent, is I did all of this stuff and I couldn't see any benefit in it at all. And people that weren't were succeeding at a significant rate. The most basic way people ask this question is why do good things happen to bad people And what do bad things happen to good people? The theological discussion, the technical term is theodicy, the problem of God and evil. And so it's not new. And the truth is that if you sit and try to figure it out, I mean, I've got some theological arguments and I've studied some stuff, but if I just try to figure it out on my own, it becomes difficult to deal with it, especially when it's a personal thing that happens in your family, in your life, in your relationships, in your career, in your schooling. When it happens to you, when something bad happens to you and that person that you know who is living anti-God in every way has nothing like this happen, when it seems like everywhere you turn there is a new 
place, a new problem, a new difficulty. It is hard personally to figure out exactly what's going on. And it can become depressing and despairing in your soul. And Asaph basically said, I was at a place of complete hopelessness. Until... And verse 17 is the turning point in this psalm. And it tells us two things in verse 17 that happened to change how he viewed it. The first is he entered God's sanctuary. And the second is he understood their destiny. When I tried to understand this seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary and then I understood their destiny. Those two things are related. They're cause and effect. I did this and as I did this, God showed me that. The first thing that he says is I enter God's sanctuary. There's lots of discussion about whether this is the actual temple of God. I think that this is a moment when, just to be honest with you, the leader of Israel's Worship the guy that is in charge of making sure that their worship is right and proper and good. At some point in his ministry, at some point in his life, he walks into the temple of God and he is there to worship the Lord. And on that, that time, something different happens. And as he is worshiping the Lord, God shows up in a way that he hadn't seen or expected. And he has an experience with God that changes his life. I'm not talking about salvation here. We'll talk about that in a moment. I'm talking about just a fresh, new understanding of God. Similar to the way that Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when King Uzziah dies, he goes into the temple and as he approaches the temple of God, he goes in, I think he's just going in to say, God, what do we do? Where do we go? What's happening next? And when he enters into the temple, a vision takes over and he has an encounter with God that changes who he is throughout Scripture. These moments of encountering God change people. And Asaph, I think, in the normal line of his duties of being a worship leader, had something different on that day, something unique on that day. And God showed up. And in that moment, he says, that God revealed to him that even though these people look like they are fat and satisfied and happy with no problems and they're openly mocking me and they've got the weight of this world on them and it looks like they are making it better than you can ever imagine. Don't forget what's coming. Verse 18. Indeed. There's that word again. You put them in slippery places and you make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors. Like one waking from a dream, Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. He says basically, these people that are living the high life now are on a slippery slope to destruction because they are openly mocking you. And even though it appears that they've got it all together, eternity and destiny will show that it was a blip in time and insignificant. Have you ever thought about mathematically how insignificant the suffering that you will do here is compared to eternity in the presence of God? 
I mean, I did a funeral yesterday or on Friday from Ms. Dot Wilson. It's not a member of our church for many years, a member of Dalewood before that for many years. Loved the Lord, worked at the Sunday school board, and she lived to be 93 years old. I figured out, just in thinking about that in my own personal life and all of that, Ms. Dot died at 93, and just looking at the dates of when she was born and died and all of that, I, when she, the day she died, I was exactly half her age, almost to the day. And I think I've got a, I mean, I've lived a great life, but another half of my life on top of that's a long time still. And yet in the scope of eternity, it is nothing. Have y'all seen the pictures from the new telescope? Just fascinating. The breadth and the depth of what God creates. And they said that one picture, (laughs) I don't understand these numbers. I don't know how they understand these numbers. They said that the one picture with the kind of cloud-like structure, that that cloud-like structure that's kind of orange in the picture was seven light years tall. I don't know how tall that is, but that's tall, right? It takes like seven years to travel it. And then they said something about that that picture, in comparison to the universe, would be like you taking a grain of sand and holding it at arm's length and looking at that grain of sand. Something that is seven light years tall compared to the rest of the universe is like a grain of sand at the end of your outstretched arm. You get into some things, it just boggles the mind to the point that you can't think about it. And I think about that that's what God created in the limit of time and space. What is eternity going to be like? And when he goes into the temple and he gets a fresh vision of God, God basically says, they may look like they've got it together now, but destruction is coming. And the comparison he makes is of a dream in our own lives. How many of you wake up understanding that what you've just had is a dream. How many of you know your dreams? Remember your dreams. All right? How many of you remember the dream you had eight years, two days ago? I don't remember the dream I had last night, right now. Some of you may remember, well, I had a crazy dream. I don't want to hear about it after service. I just, like you were talking about dreams. Let me tell you this crazy dream. That's not the point, all right? The point is most of our dreams are gone. In fact, we don't, scientists tell us, remember like 90% of our dreams ever at all. And the point that he's making here is no matter how successful or great someone here is in this life, if they're not following the Lord, if they don't have a relationship with him in eternity, they will be insignificant. The most influential people in the history of the world, if they do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, will be insignificant completely one second into eternity. Verse 21. He says, I realized when I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you. I like how he doesn't pull any punches on himself there, right? 
He says, when I was embittered and my innermost being was wounded, when I was hurt on the inside, I was stupid, I was an imbecile is what the word actually says. I didn't understand. And he says, I was a beast toward you. I was someone as if I didn't have a relationship with you. Verse 23, yet, 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 even though that, even though I was stupid and didn't understand and I was an unthinking animal and I was embittered and I was wounded and I was spouting off this nonsense, yet, God, you were always with me. Now, the way he says that is, I am always with you. That is understood as you have always had me. He says, you hold my right hand. The word there is grasp it. You're holding tightly onto it. It's the picture of a parent in a busy parking lot grasping onto their child and not letting go, no matter how hard the child fights against you. God, you have held on to me in the midst of that. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel even when I am bittered, even when I am wounded, even when I'm stupid, even when I don't understand. Even when I'm a beast towards you, you are guiding me. You are giving me your counsel. And afterward, Lord, when this life is done, when it is over, you are going to take me up into glory and you're going to make me one of your children. Verse 25, who do I have in heaven but you, God? Nothing else matters. I have desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh, my heart may fail. God, I am going to lose the fight with my body. My body is going to fail. But God, you are my strength of my heart, my portion, my desire, my want, my satisfaction forever. Those that don't have you, Lord, they're going to perish. You will destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge. And I'm going to talk about all that you do. Praise be to God. I love this psalm for several reasons. And they come in the points that we get for our own lives. And the first thing I want to tell you from this psalm that I find is that when we are hurting, when we are discouraged, when we are angry, when we don't understand, the first thing we need to do is pour our heart out to God. Asaph, basically, we get the picture that part of what happened in that vision that happens in the temple or whatever happened to the temple, part of that was Asaph being honest with God and saying, this is how I felt. This is what I saw. This is where I doubted. God, I want you to know. Even godly people have doubts when God's truth and their experience don't seem to match. We've always, all of us in this room, if we're followers of Jesus and we're serious about it, at some point in our life, we have had this moment where what we expected to happen didn't happen. What we thought God should do, He did not do. And in those moments, it is easy to get discouraged and to doubt. I mentioned earlier that what many people to be the first chronological story outside of creation, Genesis 1 through 11, and then right in the midst of that before you really get to Genesis 12, is the story of Job. And you know the story of Job where he loses absolutely everything and everyone that matters to him. And what I love about the book of Job is that God gives him so much leeway to complain and say it's not fair and God, I don't understand. And this is what's happening. Now there comes the point when God basically says, stop it, Job, let me talk from 
moment, but he is not upset with Job for sharing what is going on, and he wants us to be honest with him. Here's the thing that is ridiculous when we don't take our concerns and our worries to God. He already knows we're not surprising him with what's going on in our thoughts or our hearts or our lives. Might as well get it out and share it with him. Pour out your heart to God. And this is the second thing that this psalmist teaches us. And it's from the very first verse. Trust in God's goodness. Even in a world of wickedness, we know He is good. And His Word is good. Ultimately, that is proven to us in Jesus I mean, that is the gospel for us, that even when we were still sinners, God sent His Son, who never stumbled, who never strayed, who never did what was wrong in the sight of God, but believed completely in Him, went to the cross and died for our sins and was raised again from the dead. We could never question the goodness of God again in reality because of the death and the resurrection of His own Son, Jesus Even if everything in our lives goes astray. Alan Gardner was a missionary in the 1800s. He went to an island off the coast of South South America. He was the first one to go. And there were supposed to be a couple of boats coming with backup supplies. And those boats didn't come. They finally arrived to find Alan Gardner dead. His body laid out in a makeshift shack that he had made himself. He had apparently starved to death. They found sitting next to him his journal, and there was an entry on the day apparently before he died. On the day before he died, he just simply said, I am overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. The picture we have is him literally on a remote island without anybody there, without any food, without any sustenance, without any friends or anyone there at all. And all he can think is about the goodness of God. George Mueller was an um, evangelist, preacher, owner of an orphanage. He was a guy that was famous for prayers of his being answered. On several occasions, he sat down with his, at the orphanage with the children with no food in the kitchen, no food on the table, and they would sit at the dinner table and begin to pray and give thanks to God for the meal that he had provided. And on several occasions in the midst of that praying, someone would knock on the door with a full meal. His wife came out with rheumatic fever, and George Mueller went to work praying for her Day after day in ways that can only come from Him. In ways that had seen God answer time and time and time again. She passed away. And history records that the last thing he said to his wife was reading Psalm 8411. Basically talking about that the Lord does good for those that love Him. At his funeral, he read Psalm 119.68 as his funeral text. He preached her funeral. 
Psalm 119.68 says, Thou art good, O God, and you do good things. We pour out our heart to God. We trust in God's goodness. And we change our vantage point. Asaph says that when he sees the wicked, he envied how they lived. He envied how they died peacefully. He envied how they were blessed physically. He envied how they flourished. He envied how they avoided pain. He envied how they enjoyed peace. He regretted in that moment how he had lived. He regretted how he had pursued piety and purity. He regretted how he had suffered silently. And he wrestled with how God was working until... That until is an important moment because he changes his perspective. He changes his vantage point and he sees God. And suddenly he remembers their future of destruction and devastation and that there is but a wisp of smoke in the light of eternity. And he realizes his own foolishness. He rejoices in God's faithfulness because God holds him and guides him and will glorify him and is good to him. And in the midst of that, it changes his entire outlook. We need to be willing to think and understand that even when we see people prospering that are against the Lord, that if they are truly walking in ways contrary to God, it will not last. Tim Keller says this about this psalm in particular and about what he saws. The rich without God are on their way to being eternally poor. Celebrities without God are on their way to being eternally ignored. John Wesley, thinking about this particular passage, says, What happens at the end is the author, it's like he realizes his uncle, an uncle he didn't even know he had, died and left him a million dollars at the bank. And he says, on the way to the bank, if everything broke down, you wouldn't get mad about it. He says, you don't shake your fist at God, look enviously at everyone else's car. He says, because you know what's left for you in the bank, you skip all the way to the bank and that half mile walk becomes the most joyous walk you have ever taken. Basically, the inheritance we have laid up for us ought to get us through whatever difficulty happens in life. Two more things really quickly. Next to last is this. This passage reminds us that we need to realize that Jesus is enough. Who do I have in heaven but you, it says in verse 25. And I desire nothing on earth but you. Until we come to the place in our lives where we realize that it doesn't matter what material things we have. It doesn't matter what the job is that we have. It doesn't matter whatever this world may give us. That with Jesus, we have all that we need. And without Him, we have nothing that we do. Joni Erickson Tata is someone that was in an accident. Has lost all use of her limbs as a teenager. And when someone asked her about that, she talked about how it drawn her closer to Jesus. And she actually has this quote that I thought was just fascinating. I am okay with using, losing the use of my hands and my feet for the last 60 years. I wouldn't change a thing because that brought me nearer to God. We realize that Jesus is enough. Here's the last thing the psalm teaches us, and then we're done. 
We need to learn to proclaim God's goodness. Verse 28, I love this. It says, as for me, God's presence is my good, and I have made the Lord my refuge. Now, most of the time we think of refuge as a place to be safe and a place to sit and a place to bunker down. But that's not what he says. He says, I have made the Lord God my refuge so that, or for the reason that, I can tell about all that you do. I don't know where you are today. I don't know how frustrated you are with the Lord. Maybe you are in a place where everything is great. You're on the back end of this psalm, like the psalmist, and you have seen the Lord and you are good with it. Or maybe you're here today and you are right in the midst of that frustration. There's an illness in your life racking you, one of your family members. There's a problem in a relationship. There's something happening at your business. Something's happening with your friends. There's something happening that you can't explain and you don't understand. God, I ought to have something better than this and I ought to be going better than this. And yet, you haven't quite slipped. And today the Lord is offering you an opportunity to get a new vision and a fresh perspective and to be reminded of the good that is coming for us. The point that the psalmist sees in the midst of this is I can endure whatever may be coming my way because of who God is and what He has done for me. It is comparable to what Paul says in the New Testament when he says that what we struggle with now are momentary in nature. And when he lists all the things that he has been through in the midst of that, and he says, I consider all of that loss and I consider everything that I've gone through as gain because it brought me closer to Jesus. Because only Jesus matters. So I just wonder today if you need a fresh perspective on who God is. And what He wants to do in your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for today and for this opportunity to worship. Lord, I'm more thankful that You are a good God who loves us and cares about us and desires for us to have an eternity with You. And Lord, I pray that You will give us understanding and wisdom in moments that are difficult about what You're doing in our lives. And the long-term view. Lord, I pray in this moment, if there's someone here that does not know you as their Savior, Lord, that you would make them uncomfortable and you would make them realize their need for you. Give them the courage, Lord, just to say yes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.